Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 209, Bletchley Park, Land of Misfits. Last time, though the various parts of Britain's convoy system was given clues that their signals had been broken, it was chalked up to, by the Royal Navy, a run of bad luck, for surely their encryption had not been pierced. But ego has no place in counterintelligence. Having said that, the Germans would think the same thing a year or two later about Enigma, when the war started turning against them. The basis for the British confidence, dare I say, arrogance, that their code was still pristine, was due to them changing their basic five-digit cipher in August 1939, right before the outbreak of the war. Yet, as Tranau had been working on the British systems for years, it only took him six weeks to break this latest code. By the time Norway was invaded, the B. Dienst, a department of the German Naval Intelligence Service, was able to read half of the British Royal Navy's messages. But in true Hitler fashion, the Nazis did not have their own version of a centralized cryptography agency, like Britain's Government Code and Cipher School, or GCNCS at Bletchley Park. Still, Tranau and the people at B. Dienst served their country well at the beginning of the war and during the Norway operation, which was a perfect example. Almost as good, when the British Navy changed their codes again after France fell in June 1940, it took the B. Dienst until the end of the year to be able to, again, read their signals. But going back to the Norwegian campaign... Because of Trinau breaking the enemy's latest naval code in late September 1939, Berlin knew the whereabouts of the home fleet and the location of stragglers or lone ships and where they were operating. This helped cause the loss of the carrier Glorious, sunk by the Schornhurst and Gneisenau off the coast of Norway. The HMS Glorious, originally a battlecruiser but converted to an aircraft carrier in the late 1920s, was first in the Mediterranean at the beginning of the war. Then she was sent to the Indian Ocean to search for the cruiser Admiral Graf Spee. After another stint in the Mediterranean, she was recalled to help with the Battle of Norway. Before heading out for this theater, 18 Gloucester Gladiators from 263 Squadron were flown aboard who would be then transferred to air bases in Norway to help support the landed troops, trying to stop the Germans from taking control of the country. Additional planes for 803, 802, and 804 squadrons were also landed on Glorious before departing. By April 24, 1940, Glorious and another carrier, Ark Royal, were off Norway's coast. 263 Squadron took off and attacked enemy targets near Trondheim. After that, Glorious had to return to Scapa Flow. This was on April 27th for more fuel and to take on more planes. By May 1st, Glorious was back, but had fewer planes on board this time than planned for due to bad weather. On board were a dozen swordfish of 823 Squadron and three skuas and a Blackburn Rock fighter. This was a mixed blessing, considering the carrier's fate, but it also hampered her operations, offensive and defensive, as she was harassed all that day by the Luftwaffe. By dusk, though one Stuka dive bomber had been taken out, it was decided that the area was too hot and that the Glorious 
should depart. The carrier would return to the theater two more times, bringing in planes for various airfields still under British or Norwegian control. But all this was for naught, as by early June, London had decided to withdraw all their forces, codenamed Operation Alphabet. The departures started in the north, and Glorious was on hand to provide air cover. Unfortunately, the carrier only had nine Sea Gladiators of 802 Squadron and six Swordfish of 823 Squadron for self-defense. As the War Cabinet wanted to salvage all possible planes, on June 7th, ten Gladiators of 263 Squadron landed on her, followed by additional Hurricanes of 46 Squadron. But this wasn't the only battle going on. The man in charge of Glorious was Captain Guy D'Ali Hughes, but he had not been the commander originally. That had been Air Commander J.B. Heath, but Heath had been left back in Scapa Flow on their last return because he was being held for a court-martial. Earlier, Heath, as the carrier commander, had been told to attack some shore targets, but the intel on them was sketchy and it was an attack that his aircraft were not suited for. Always a dangerous combination. With that, Heath would not give the order to attack. So, he was back in Scotland, and Guy was now the man in charge. Guy was told to bring the Glorious home early on June 8th. Just before the carrier headed home, she took on a few more gladiators of 263 Squadron and then raced smoke, along with her escorting destroyers, Acasta and Ardent. But their funnel smoke was later spotted by the German battleships Schornhurst and Gneisenau at 3.46 p.m. In their turn, the British vessels spotted the German ships just after 4 p.m. and Ardent was sent on to gather intelligence. But this is where the story turns weird. Heath was going to be put on trial for ignoring orders, but Guy did something even worse. He was not adequately defending his carrier. For one, having spotted two German warships, the carrier's speed nor course were altered. Next, though five swordfish planes were ordered to the flight deck at 4.20, none of them took off and incredibly, no aircraft were already in the air on patrol, who could now attack the Germans. And lastly, as there were no lookouts in the carrier's crow's nest, the spotting of the enemy vessels could have happened earlier. As it was, the Schornhurst's guns opened fire on the approaching destroyer Ardent at 427, at a range of 16,000 yards or 15,000 meters. This forced the destroyer to back off. She had her information and was no match for the battleship. Knowing this, the Ardent fired off a few torpedoes and laid down smoke. Incredibly, the destroyer hit the Shornhurst with a shell from her 4.7-inch gun, but was herself hit several times by the enemy vessel's secondary guns. The damage was enough to eventually send the Ardent below the waves, at 5.25 p.m. With the Ardent removed from the fight to deal with her damage, the Shornhurst moved her guns to aim at the Glorious at 4.23 p.m. The first shot missed, as did the second, but not the third. 
while 26,000 yards or 24,000 meters away, an 11.1 inch or 28.3 centimeter shell hit the forward flight deck of the carrier. It exploded in the upper hangar and started a fire. Even worse for the Glorious, not only did the explosion wreck two swordfish preparing to launch, but a hole in the flight deck would not allow any other aircraft to take off. And like that, the carrier was no longer a carrier, but rather a very expensive target, filled up with over 1,000 men and numerous planes. But then it got even worse. Splinters from the blast hit a boiler, which caused a temporary drop in steam pressure, the last thing Guy needed. Then a second shell struck true at 4.58 p.m., just above the bridge. Captain Guy was killed, along with most of his crew. A few, however, were only severely injured. But it was then that the smokescreen that had been laid down by the Ardent began to pay off. The stalking German battleships lost sight of the carrier at 5.20, so quit firing on her. But at 5.20, when Glorious came back into view, the Germans started firing again. The first renewed shelling was accurate. Glorious was hit in her center engine room. Now she lost speed and started circling to port while listing to starboard. Smelling blood, the German ships closed in to within 16,000 yards and fired again. This went on for 20 minutes. 30 minutes later, at 6.10 p.m., the Glorious went under with all but 43 of her crew. While this had been going on, the other destroyer, Acosta, had been continuously laying down smoke, trying to protect her charge. But with the Glorious taking a beating, the destroyer came roaring through her own smoke, launching two volleys of torpedoes at the Shornhurst. One of these made contact at 534, just behind the rear turret. Adding to this impressive damage, the destroyer also managed one hit from her 4.7-inch gun. However, the battleship survived all damage and fired back. The Acosta was severely damaged and would end up going down at 6.20 p.m. With all three British ships gone, the Germans departed the area as they believed that help was on the way. It was not. Still, the battleships left. As for the Admiralty and London in general, they did not learn of any of this until it was reported on German radio. A Norwegian ship passed by the area on June 10th and picked up 37 survivors. Another Norwegian ship sailed by the area and picked up five survivors, but was forced to return to German-controlled Norway. All told, the Glorious lost 1,207 men, the Acosta 160 men, and the Ardent 152 men, totaling 1,000 519 souls. An investigation by the House of Commons found that the heavy cruiser Devonshire had passed within some 40 miles or 64 kilometers, but as Vice Admiral John Cunningham had the Norwegian royal family on board, taking them to London, and was ordered to keep radio silence, he would not allow his ship to look for survivors. Not until 1999 did the House of Commons hold a debate on the sinking. 
The why of this, you would have to ask someone else. But the fact that the Bletchley Park decoding of German transmissions was made public in the 1970s may have something to do with it. Either way, it came out that some at Bletchley had told naval personnel of the two German battleships leaving their stations. But it seems that the Navy did not give this much credence, as it was coming from not only civilians, but rather odd civilians at that. Hindsight allows us to know that the Germans hired professionals as their codebreakers. This was the Germans being German. The Americans, being American, hired mostly lawyers. But leave it to the English to hire oddballs, or more nicely put, mavericks. But you can't argue with their results. Either way, the Royal Navy never alerted the Glorious or her two escorts to the German breakout. There was still much to learn by many. One such oddball was Harry Hensley, who would later become a professor at Cambridge. He worked in Hut 4 and was 20 years old. He had been studying medieval history in Cambridge, and perhaps because of that, he didn't either worry too much about his appearance or when he compared his threadbare clothes to those who lived several centuries ago, he found himself acceptable. But when he arrived at Hut 4, his corduroy trousers, it seemed, wouldn't last the war, perhaps not even the year. So his Hut colleagues had a whip round and bought him a new pair. Hensley took them, said thanks, put them on, and got back to work. His job was to be in charge of traffic analysis, but not so much to decode the messages that came to him, but rather to notice patterns and their origin. Then putting these two things together to come up with conclusions. It wasn't long before this distracted young man was proving his worth. In early April 1940, he could see an increase in signal traffic in the Baltic area. Clearly, there had to be a reason for all these messages in that area or about that area. So, doing his duty, on April 7th, he reported his findings and suspicions that something was coming to OIC, Operational Intelligence Center, at the Admiralty. They poo-pooed it. What happened next was Germany invading Norway. An important opportunity had been missed. A few weeks later, Hensley noticed another oddity. The German naval signals using the Baltic frequencies were being used over and over, but on other frequencies. After a few days of pondering, Hensley guessed that the German surface vessels were being moved from the Baltic to the Skerak, a body of water in between Denmark and Norway, but it also touches Sweden. Clearly, something was up, and by early June, Hensley was convinced that the enemy was gathering their surface ships for something big. And trusting in himself, he passed this on to Rear Admiral Norman Denning, head of OIC. He ended with, the Germans were preparing for action in the North Sea. What the young Hensley did not know at the time, because cheap cryptographer Dilly Knox and the operational head of Bletchley, Alistair Denniston decided who, and it was a very small number, got to see the entire picture, was that London had decided to evacuate their troops from Norway. 
And as small as the number was of those at Bletchley who got to see the whole picture, the German version had even fewer people in the know. But again, Hinsley's warning was not passed on, or at least not given the priority he thought it deserved. It certainly did not reach the doomed, glorious, ardent Anacasta. One reason the Navy was not impressed with the 20-year-old Hensley, besides him being a civilian, was that he had long hair. And yes, this was 1940. In time, the OIC and other military staff in the Citadel would place more value on Station X and Bletchley Park. But when the Germans got word of this in dribs and drabs, their reaction was the following. And remember, this is coming from a German. That they should be jealous of he, Hensley's success, is understandable, wrote Frank Birch, head of Bletchley's German Navy section, in October. That they should dislike him personally is of small matter, but that they should be obstructive is ruinous. With Norway and Denmark now under Nazi rule, and Britain offering up a poor showing in Norway's defense, a new government would be formed in London, one that would last the war, with a few changes, but overall would be aggressive in defense and later in offense, but helped set the tone of defiance in the face of incredible odds. But more to the point of convoy protection and enemy detection, or, or under the high seas, the OIC would take Hensley more seriously, no matter the length of his hair or the state of his trousers. <laughs> 